Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello, welcome to Bug Eyes Rock Pop Rambles. I'm your host, Angela Martin, and this week I'm joined by Paula Snow, also from the band Bug Eye. Hey, Paula. Hey, who'd have thought it? Also from the band Bug Eye on our Rock Pop Rambles. Exactly, exactly. How are you doing anyway? Yeah, not been too bad actually. Um, attempted to go to the dump today, but the car wouldn't start. So now I have a Christmas tree, yes, at this time in January, in the back of my car, wrapped up in a bed sheet, looking like a dead body. But that's been <laughs> the sum output of my day for today. It's been a bit hard to be a bit motivated, really. <laughs> no, fair enough, fair enough. Um, I mean, yeah, this 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 time around, I'm, I am finding myself to be a, a little less motivated mm. in doing things but um but hopefully that's just a January blip I know um, I don't think we're the only ones going through it it's hard to know really isn't it whether it's the whole kind of corona situation or January or a winning I'm combination of the two <laughs> yeah no no of course or as I say it could be that we're just really lazy yeah I'm gonna cut us a little bit more slack than that and say we're going through a pandemic at the moment it's January like I think we're allowed to be a little yeah. bit meh about life yeah no fair, fair enough fair enough talking about meh things um well not meh things just in depressing things I probably I'm I'm gonna make myself just watch comedies and things at the moment because I've gone through a back to listening to lots of true crime mm-hmm. then I've just watched The Serpent on BBC iPlayer which I highly highly recommend fucking brilliant and also the Pembrokeshire Murders, um, which which was on ITV, which was really, really good. Really good. And that's that's kind of... Well, both of them are based on real, true crimes, things that happened. And both are really, really disturbing. I have to say, Keith Allen does a sterling job in Pembrokeshire Murders. So- really, really good. Now I kind of want to watch those, but like you, I've been on a true crime tip. I've watched something about the Boston Strangler and also the Night Night Stalker back to back. And it's terrifying. It is. It's really terrifying. It's really terrifying. Um, But I mean, to be honest, the true crime podcasts, um, listening to uh, Drunk Women Solving Crime. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Hilarious. It, you know, I actually come away with a smile on my face mm-hmm. and that's not saying about the, it's, 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 listen to it and you'll know what I mean. It's, you know, some of the crimes they talk about are just like ridiculous bank robberies or just something mm-hmm. really random. Um, but it's, it's absolutely hilarious. And uh, yeah, I, I definitely, but they actually had live shows in December, apparently. Yeah, um, in Clapham, totally, wasn't it? Yeah, but the, I suppose I didn't buy a ticket because I just thought, ah, it'd be cancelled. Mm-hmm. And I've stopped buying tickets for things because I've lost I've lost count as to how many gigs I'm waiting to have rescheduled. Um, I mean, when we come out of lockdown, I'm going to have a very vibrant um, time of just going to loads of shows <laughs> and things. Um, Sod's law, they'll all clash. But um, yeah, you never know. But anyway, Paula. Yes. What are we talking about today? This was your idea, so you talk about it. We're talking about musical tales rambles from our local areas ah, yes. keeping it local because so, that's all we can do at the moment hey 
because I did because things we haven't actually discussed who we're talking about, and I did wonder mm-hmm. whether you were going to pick where we our local areas. So from where we grew up or where we're living now is what I so I I didn't know which, and then I thought. Uh-huh. Oh well, if it's from where you know, maybe maybe we're going to talk about the same thing. Which we should just then quiz each other on what facts we've got. But um, try and outdo I'll each let, other. Yeah, I let I let you go first, and then I'll frantically Google a different story if it's the same. <laughs> Quickly get on Google. Okay, well I'm not talking about a who. I'm more talking about a what. And since I moved to Crystal Palace, um, I discovered that there's a place in the park that's actually called the Crystal Palace Bowl, as in like the Hollywood Bowl, and it's an old performance venue. So I'm going to chat a little bit about the history of that. Brilliant. And are you doing a who, what or where? When? A a where. Okay. And a who. So I'm I'm doing two things here. Oh, look at you, Miss Smarty Pants. Combined, combined. Because I kind of went down a sort of rabbit hole with with this one, but I decided to to go back to Canning Town in East London, mm-hmm. where I grew up and where we went to school and where we met. Yeah. Um. So East London, and to look at um, you know, you just start getting famous bands from the area, and then all this stuff popped up, and then yeah, I just discovered so much stuff. So I'm going to be talking about Canning Town. I'm going to be talking about the famous venue, the Bridge House. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately it wasn't around when we were teenagers it was like long gone Mm -hmm. by then I wish it was still there but um, it's not and then also a local band but I'll I'll let you know which one as I kind of reveal the story of the bridge house and then you can guess which artist I'm talking about as the tale unravels exactly but new music wise um, I got emailed a track from Cat5 now those that have listened to the show will know that that Cat5 is also from Feral5, but Cat5 has a solo career and recently did a collaboration with Misled Convy um, for a track called Apply the Pressure, which is out on the 22nd of January. So I thought I'd give that one a bit of a spin because it's quite cool. Nice, nice. And it fits in with all my chat about Netflix, but I'll tell you why in a minute. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but well, it does Ten really, it's link. just in my head. Well, exactly, I've just made something up in my head, basically, about it. But uh, who have you got for us? Um, I've got someone that we've played on the show before as well. I'm playing the Leeds bass band Nervous Twitch. Twi- I can't speak. Nervous Twitch. Got a nervous tick there. And their, <laughs> their latest track, All Right Lads. Yep, really, really love that band. Signed to Reckless Yes, so they're our label buddies. I also just have, well. a, have to have a quick plug for their video because it's bloody brilliant. If you've not seen it, check it out. It's really good. It's really good. Okay, so... I, I think I did. I I can't remember who out of me and Kerry started last week. I, I don't really care either, actually. Do you want to go first? Should I'm we, interested. All right. Should we crack on then? Yeah, go on then. Without further ado. So to talk about the history of the Crystal Palace Bowl, we have to go back quite far to the end of the 1800s, to 1851. What? To 1851 to be exact. And I'll tell you why. The Great Exhibition was moved from Hyde Park to Crystal Palace and where the park is now, that whole area was reformed and re-landscaped. It created its spectacular Victorian pleasure grounds, whatever that may be. Although, actually, no. Well, they, they were so great at making pleasure grounds. I was gonna... That's what they did, right? They opened, like, fantastic museums and shitloads of parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sorry, I interrupted. No, no, no worries, I was going to say. And I have Googled Victorian pleasure gardens because I wanted to see what they look like. And they are amazing. Like, they look 
they're illustrations, so you can't you can't say that they are 100% true to form, but they look bloody amazing. Um, the northwest corner of the ground, where the bowl now sits, was initially used for archery demonstrations, not for music, and was known as the English Garden Landscape. Okay. <laughs> uh, the gentle sloping area has always lent itself to large gatherings. From the 1980s, it was used for regular controlled balloon ascents. Uh, in 19, in, sorry, in 1884, a Venetian fate was made there with a lighting display containing 15,000 oil lamps. 15,000? I'm, I'm also wondering about the kind of, you know, the intelligence of having 15,000 oil lamps burning within a park. They always did crazy stuff, though, those Victorians. And it was also accompanied by a mere 2,000 Chinese lanterns suspended from the trees. The small lake, which now sits directly in front of the bowl, was decorated with a series of semicircles floating on the surface. Hang reflection- on one moment, because this is Crystal Palace Park, right? yeah. and you're talking about loads of like oil lamps burning or whatever. Mm-hmm. Is it any surprise that Crystal Palace itself, the beautiful venue um, that was just like a, a architecturally wonderful, please Google images of this, but it burnt down. Is that a surprise? Yeah, but that was like what? 1930 I think that was a good like 50 years after this this was the well they had a good run but they went one better with a fire they also had a massive pyrotechnic display in the air so this was always an area where people came together a temporary grandstand accommodating to accommodate 10,000 spectators was erected in 1911 for the festival of the empire the central attraction was a pageant of London sitting within the English garden landscape i find that so hard to say i don't know why it was a huge it was a hugely ambitious ambitious theatrical event recreating historical acts with a cast of fifteen thousand performers telling the story of london britain and the empire and it was comprised by the scores of 17 native composers so in its beginnings it was always quite about the big sort of coming together of people big sort of villages fates but always with a musical background the ideas of kind of like sort of classical music went on to shape the early years of what is today's Crystal Palace Bowl. This was the one that we have now was actually built in 1951. And it was kind of classical Quick music. Question. Is it is it big? Because when you were talking about like, you know, super, like, you know, I'm expecting a huge, huge, like stadium size. I mean, it's it doesn't look huge, but it can hold 120 performers. Oh, the actual stuff. Wow. Okay, that is quite big. And I think it doesn't look too big from like from where you see it now because you're looking at it across a sort of, I can't say it's a lake because it's not. Let's call it like a large pond. But I guess if you take into account that and the surround, I've got, I've got, I went and took some panoramic pictures the other day of it actually to put in the show notes for this. I guess when you consider um, the area around it, it probably is quite big, but I'll come to capacities a bit later. All right then. It's in my notes. Hold your horses there. Now I've lost my place. Okay, so what we're talking about. Uh, yeah, classical music kind of dominated until 1961. Two people, namely a Mr. Michael Afondary and Mr. Harvey Goldsmith, who was a promoter responsible for promoting both Live Aid and more recently the Teenage Cancer Trust shows at Royal Albert Hall. They partnered with a father and son promoter called John and Terry Smith, who managed a lot of the major touring acts at the time. They went on to persuade the GLC, for those who don't know what the GLC was, it was kind of like the mayor of London in the 
I'd say between the 50s and the 80s to hold start to hold um, like more kind of avant-garde sort of pop rock parties there and they went on to produce what what came to be known as the garden parties that were inspired by festivals such as Woodstock, Glastonbury and the Isle of Wight. But they pioneered, pioneered a very different formula. There were no kind of like camping out, people bringing tents. They were just one day festivals in an urban setting. Initially running twice annually, the garden party events quickly gained a reputation for their eclectic lineups, featuring acts such as Pink Floyd, The Faces, Roxy Music, Elton John, The Beach Boys, Lou Reed, like huge names at the time. And not least for excitable audience members venturing into the lake for a closer view of the stage. And there are some really amazing photos there. Like you have a huge, like there's people playing on the stage and there's people like four, five, six, seven deep in the water. People sitting on dinghies, on lifeboats. It's like, it looks like a really cool experience to be fair. And it wasn't just the party goers that were known for that. They're kind of madcap japes, let's say. Um, it, it was a very experimental format of events. And there were also like a lot of stories that came from the performers that were there. Starting with a giant octopus that emerged from the water for the finale of Pink Floyd set, uh, it became renowned for an extravagant backdrops and dramatic entrances from artists, including Keith Moon, rather, arriving dressed as a pirate via a helicopter and hovercraft in 1972. <laughs> However, uh, on, the, on the 7th of June 1980, on a promotional tour, Bob Marley found his way past the dinosaurs to Crystal Palace Bowl. Marley was about to release, up, release Uprising, which would be his final studio album before his death later that year. So I have a question for you. Given yeah, that, go for it. Given that a loaf of bread in 1980 cost 35p, how much do you think a yeah. ticket to see Bob Marley cost? Ooh, um, what, at this event or just in general? At this event. At this event? Mm-hmm. I reckon tickets were about £7.50. Have you done the research as well? No. Seriously? No, not at all. That you was just like a random guess. Well, you're, you're on the mark because that was the price of the day. They were, however, seven quid in advance. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Ten out what of ten. What do I win? What do I win? My adoration. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think personally, I think seven quid's a bargain price, but that didn't stop one yeah. attendee not wanting to pay for the tickets. But was was that like the equivalent of like <laughs> seventy quid back then? Uh, no, I think that's about probably about right. Well, maybe that's where this person was coming from because she said I was working at the Crystal Palace Children's Zoo that summer of nineteen eighty, and as a bona fide council employee, I decided that I shouldn't have to pay for a ticket. I went along with some friends and we were, we knew the security guards, so we were allowed in for free. At one point, Harvey Goldsmith, who was a promoter, pulled up in his big posh car and asked the guys what we were doing there. Their explanation was that we were there to sort out any female fence jumpers, and that seemed to satisfy him, and off he went. We thought it was hilarious, though, that such an important person would be really worried about two sets of price of tickets. Bob Marley and the Wailers played their largest ever concert and drew a record-breaking crowd to the bowl, reportedly as high as, high as 30,000 people, which I didn't think, which I thought was a lot of people, but what I didn't realise was when I was how much it was, so I started to compare it to other capacities. So what do you think the capacity of Brixton Academy is? It's about 6,500 people, isn't it, or something like that, I think. It's just under five. 
Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I thought it was bigger than that. So they had six times the capacity of Brixton Academy. There. Okay, that's that's pretty big. And how big do you think the O2 is? Oh, isn't that like 40,000 or something ridiculous like that? No, it's 20,000. Oh, so like that's... God, I'm really overshooting on these ones. You know, I thought I was doing really well in that quiz and then, you know. I mean, so to be fair, like, it was massively well attended and I'm actually wondering how they managed to fit 30,000 people into Crystal Palace Park. One gig-goer who travelled down from Scotland said, yes, it was a crazy day. We arrived and had a great view down to the bottom of the hill. We thought great and went for a wander down to the right of the stage and all the whalers were behind the mesh fence. They were coming over, chatting to the crowd and passing spliffs around. Uh, so I don't really think that security was super tight in those days. Um, it's been described as an absolutely spell-blinding show. Uh, the encore saw Bob Marley come on stage with just him and a guitar and give an acoustic performance of Redemption Scone, song rather, sorry, at the time was unreleased. It was to be the London Swan song on this, his final tour. Rob Baker, who was there as a teenager, said, for the last song the sun came out, and he came back on stage playing a redemption song with just an acoustic guitar. It was a very special moment because no one had heard it before. Marley would be the last big star to perform there, as Goldsmith admits that he struggled to finance such big artists at a venue that could only hold 15,000 people. So, although it could only hold 15,000, there was obviously double the amount there, and there are other kind of sort of un- verified I guess reports that a lot of people just popped along after work because it was in the park and enjoyed it for free. So what happened next? From 1981 the new Labour-led administration the GLC took over promotion of public events in London parks and began a period of more politically charged concerts, protests and events. There were things there to do with like um, free Nelson Mandela campaigns and they were really there like rallying the public behind causes and also, they kind of strove to significantly diversify the acts that appeared within the kind of the public realm. By 1995, the ageing temporary stage at the Bowl had long outlived its creators at the GLC and closed in preparation for the construction of a new permanent stage. This also shifted back towards like a more sort of classical opera, mu- opera music approach. And they also wanted to incorporate smaller acts. The popular annual Bowl Festival kept the flag flying, providing a platform for new local material and music of more sort of kind of popular genre. It ran from 1999 to 2007 and gave debuts to the likes of Noisettes and a young local lady called Florence Welch, who pre the machine, in her experimental first band, Ashok. It's currently supported by local groups such as Crystal Palace Bowl and their ongoing commitments to reboot the rusty laptop as it's locally known. Uh, a plaque has additionally been um, revealed recently to commemorate the huge concert by Bob Marley and his debut performance of Redemption Song. Developed in partnership with the Nubian Jack Community Trust, who worked to highlight the historic contributions of black and minority ethnic people to British, British, British culture, the plaque adopts the traditional kind of her- blue sort of heritage design, but is ringed with the Ethiopian and Pan-African reggae colours of red, yellow and green. Louis Bloom, the president of Island Records, arranged for a huge donation to come from the company, saying, Bob Marley is a truly defining artist for Island Records. His music and his message are constant reminders of the power and importance of music in people's lives. The Crystal Palace Bowl concert was legendary and was also the last time that Bob played in London.
to have this giant of music and culture honoured in this way will help inspire future generations and keep his message of love, hope, activism and spirituality alive. So that's the Crystal Palace Bowl. Sorry for my horrific pronunciations of spirit, spirit, spirituality. Say it. Anyway, next time I'll Google a different or try and find a thesaurus for a different word for the words I can't say. But that was the Crystal Palace Bowl. And I think it's a really cool thing to have in my local area. It is a little bit run down at the moment, but they are working really hard to try and get something put back there for the local community. And I'd also like to add, if you have the opportunity, if it ever comes around again, go and check it out for open house because you can walk around the changing rooms and they've got these these awesome pictures of like loads of concerts that were taking place there. They've got the old sort of poster designs in there. It's really, really cool. Thoroughly recommend it. How, how did I not know this existed? Like seriously, I've been to Crystal Palace Park a number of times, mainly to see the dinosaurs. And when I say to see the dinosaurs, for those that don't know, I'm not talking about real dinosaurs, obviously. Um, but the Victorians... Um, also created in the park what they believe dinosaurs look like and it's it's just it's quite a cool thing to to walk around but yeah I didn't know that about the Crystal Palace bowl I'd never heard of it so I'll definitely be checking that out we'll go find a second cool thing in Crystal Palace park also what I didn't touch on is there's a lot of information about the architecture of it but I think that's maybe one for an architecture podcast not a music based one <laughs> maybe or for Julia to pick up on she's kind of she's she's into all of that but um, I also just want to apologize that we had a bit of sound interference in part of that which I think we've sorted out it's the um it's the problem of using zoom and recording remotely and all of that so apologies for that and hopefully it it didn't disrupt your listening pleasure um but talking about listening pleasures should we should we listen to a song I think we should Shall we listen to Misled Convoy and Cat 5? Because they've got a fucking cracking song, I have to say. So excuse my language. Um, <laughs> Apply the Pressure, which is out on which is out on the 22nd of January, which is actually the day this podcast comes out. So make sure you check that out. It's out through Dub Mission Records. And here it is. This is Apply the Pressure. Times come. 
So that was Apply the Pressure, which is a collaboration between Misled Convoy and Cat5. And like I say, that's actually out today's in today. The podcast is out. That is that is out. I mean, for me, it kind of had a sort of space age futuristic feel. And when I was talking about Netflix earlier, I could totally see this being like the theme, the main theme tune thing for some kind of detective or spy series it totally totally needs to get a sync deal this this song i think it's brilliant nice nice happy release day guys so on with the show on with the show right so we're talking about um well music related like a music story or thing or something related to our local area and for once i haven't picked croydon which is where i've been living for god it's going on almost a decade now and we're all south we're all kind of um uh this this neck of the woods these days but it wasn't always the case because I actually grew up in Canning Town in East London which is the the Royal Docks area which is where Sadiq Khan the mayor of London is moving um the city hall office is basically going to be in Canning Town the, the Royal Docks which seems really bizarre to me I mean, I thought you were here to dis- disclose the fact that Sadiq Khan himself was moving to the Royal Docks. Well, you I t- maybe he is, maybe he is, but I, that's not a fact. That's probably fiction. But um, he's certainly going to be working 
working there. So for those that don't know the area, it's the home of the Excel building. There's City Airport. And that's about it. Um, and there's our no, old school. <laughs> there is our old school. Me and Paula grew up around there. And we met um, when, when I went to secondary senior school um, at Eastleigh Community School. And that's where I met that's where I met you, actually. And I think, I think we actually started to really become friends when we went on that trip to Fair Play House. Mm-hmm. And me, you, Hazel and Sasha were sent off with a map to do orienteering kind of trek and we just completely hopeless. got lost. Yeah, we were hopeless. But but we may have got lost, but we found each other and had a fantastic friendship. Um, still do, still do. It's not past tense. They're still friends. <laughs> but um, yeah, uh, so that that was that was a little bit of information about how me and Paula met, which you probably didn't need to know. But anyway, I thought I would focus on some music from that area. And what you don't know, Paula, is I mean, there's lots of famous people that came from the borough of Newham. And did you know that? Um, did you know Vera Lynn um, is is from Stratford? I did know Stratford, East London, not not Shakespeare Land. I didn't know she was from Stratford. I, I I thought she was from East London. To be fair, yeah, Stratford, Ooh. Stratford girl. Yeah. Also, um, he's a good, he's a good, is Ebenezer good? Whatever that group was, Shaman. they were from. That's it, Shaman. They were from Cannington. But that's I'm not. Ow, 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 ow. ow sorry. But I'm not talking about either of those anyway. So I googled famous bands, musicians, and then um, came across the Bridge House, which I had heard of. You know, some rumblings. Oh, there was a great gig venue. Oh, the sixties and seventies and eighties were great for music venues, and they're all gone now. Blah blah blah. You know, I think there's a story like that for for every town um, in in the country, pretty much. But when I looked into this, actually, this venue was really special so I'm going to tell you a little bit about the bridge house before I get into my story because the two are related um so I've got a lot of this information from the bridgehouse16.com website um an article in the independent there was an article in the guardian and then some some other sources which I'll mention later because I don't want to give it away to which band I'm talking about but um, yeah, so the Bridge House was a rock venue in East London and the first pub in the world to have its own record label. Really? Yeah. It was owned by uh, boxer Terence Murphy, although he was more remembered for the venue than his boxing days. But, you know, he wasn't an amateur. He was actually a professional um, boxer. So throughout the 70s and 80s, it was a regular home to such bands as Iron Maiden, Depeche Mode, the Blues Band, Secret Affair as well as um, Wasted Youth, who was actually Terence Murphy's son's band. Mm-hmm. Um, Darren Murphy from the band actually went to the same junior school as me. No way. Um, he went to St Helens, which was like a, run by nuns. Like, I'm not joking, it was run by nuns. Did you know this in East at the London, time? Catholic. Well, no, 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 because obviously this is before I was even born. Because um, <laughs> obviously his band was around in the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s. Um, we were very tiny then, so um, yeah. Um, but yeah, so he went to the same junior school as me, and then he also went to the same secondary school that my brother went to. But again, before my brother's time, by by a few, by a few years, <laughs> only just. But anyway, um, that's a joke. It's by quite a few years. But anyway, 
The bridge house shut its doors to live music in 1982 and was bulldozed into the ground a couple of years later. The bridge house is still remembered fondly by all that have played and visited the pub on the Canning Town roundabout beneath the pylons. So, Paul, if you remember Canning Town roundabout, do you remember where yeah. the MFI was? Right. Yeah. So if you kind of went past that and you were heading towards Poplar, mm-hmm. um, it's it's kind of just slightly up up that way oh wow but um but we we would never have seen it because 1982 um it was knocked down so it wouldn't have been something that would have been in our sight line really um but you two played their first ever london show wow there um depeche mode played there for a year in residency and the pub management um helped get them a deal with mute records um, Cafe Racers played. They later changed their name to Dire Straits. Um, Paul Young and his Q-Tips band had a residency there for nine months. Chaz and Dave were regulars. Um, they even recorded a double live album there. Um, Iron Maiden played over 35 times with three different sing- singers. Flock of Seagulls got signed there. Billy Bragg played and won a talent contest there. <laughs> the Police... Um, used to ring up regularly to try and get a gig. But the owner was like, with a name like that, we, and given the, you know, Canning Town's reputation, there's no way we could give a band called the police a gig because people might think they had members of the police in there. So, no, we couldn't have that. So, <laughs> turned down the police. Wow. Um, other regulars included Jeff Buck, The Damned, Sham 69, Joan Jett, Soft Cell and Cockney Rejects. So out of all of the above mentioned, who do you think I'm talking about today? Out of all of them, who who is it that you think I'm going to talk about? And I'll give you a hint. It's not Terence Murphy's band, Wasted Youth. So someone else I mentioned is from Canning Town. I want to say Iron Maiden. No. I won't, I won't let you go on. I'm going to talk about Cockney Rejects. Okay. And the reason why I picked them was, one... They obviously grew up in Canning Town. Um, but but two, it was just like, oh, I kind of know the Cockney Rejects, like a couple of their songs, oi, 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 you know, on a punk compilation or something. But I don't really know about them. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't. I don't own any of their records, really. So I thought that would be interesting because I know that they are, you know, a recognisable name. So let me have a little look into them. And, and it's such... An interesting and sad story how misunderstood um, they they were. Um, so the Cockney Rejects were formed in 1977 by brothers Jeff and Mickey Gigas, who lived in a flat in Canning Town. Mm-hmm. They first formed the band with their brother-in-law Chris Morrill on bass and Paul Harvey on drums. The latter two were later replaced with Vince Reardon on bass and his uncle was Jack the Hat McVitie, a Cockney gangster who was killed um, by Reggie Cray. Yeah. So any fi- any film you watch about the Crays has the storyline with Jack the Hat Mavitti, um, with a very shocking, um, disturbing end to him. Um, but yeah, so Paul Harvey, who was originally on drums, was replaced by Andy Scott, and this became known as the Cockney Rejects sort of classic lineup. So this was when they actually started to do something. And they kind of played its sort of debut in that lineup at the Bridge House in Canning Town mm-hmm. in June 1979. And that is actually considered to be the turning point for the band. And in September of that year, 
the band signed to EMI and released their album Greatest Hits Volume 1. Obviously, it wasn't their greatest hits. That was meant to be, you know... Ironic. Yes, exactly. And that was in February 1980. And their song from the same year, Oi Oi Oi, was the inspiration for the name of the same genre, Oi. Because I didn't realise that um, there was a sub-genre of punk... So a more hardcore version of punk called Oi. I didn't, I really didn't know that at all. I mean, I knew that. I had no idea where the, where the name came from, though. Yes, yeah, so it comes It comes from that song. Um, but I'll get uh, onto that in a moment. Their biggest hit single in the United Kingdom um, was also in the 80s, and that was The Greatest Cockney Ripoff, was what it was called. And they also did a punk version of West Ham Football Club's anthem, I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles. Now, that's an important point because they were huge West Ham fans. And, um, you know, one of the things they thought they could do is really, like, get some headlines for, for the team that they loved and stuff like that. Um, but anyway, the, so I suppose the Cockney rejects um, express sort of contempt for all politicians mm. in their lyrics, essentially, um, and the violence depicted in their lyrics was often mirrored at their concerts and the band members often fought to defend themselves. Um, often supporters of opposing football teams um, would, would basically come to their gigs and kick off. And that so, was the sole reason for them coming to the gigs? Yeah, yeah. Wow. They were like, you know, so the, the Cockney rejects were West Ham supporters. So let's go and kick off. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, crazy, but more on that anyway. Um, but yeah, so let's talk about Oi, the song, and Oi, the subgenre of punk. That sort of quickly developed a reputation as being synonymous with arson, racism, and football violence. Mm -hmm. um, the Cockney Rejects 1980 performance at Birmingham Cedar Club, which by all counts is the most violent gig in British history. Um, the problem was football-related, the Cockney Rejects were affiliated with West Ham Football Club, like I said, and that brought along hooligans to their gigs, basically, and the Birmingham football hooligans descended on the gig. There were fights in the crowd, the bands were attacked, one of them got stabbed, and it was complete carnage. And in the aftermath, um, Mickey from the band was charged with GBH mm -hmm. and a fray, and the Cockney Rejects' career as a live band was, in effect, over because of, because of this. They attempted to play Liverpool later that year, but that gig ended just after six songs because 150 Liverpool football hooligans showed up and were attacking the crowd and tried to attack the band. This is madness. I know, I know. This is this is crazy, right? The problem isn't really to do with the music as such um, that bands like the Cockney Rejects made um, at that time. The problem is always adoption by the far right Mm -hmm. as a soundtrack of choice. So I've talked about football football hooligans, but not so much about the um, the right-wing element of this, which I'm about to come on to. Um, so this is from an article in The the Guardian. I've kind of taken... I'm just going to read some bits of this because I think it kind of explains it quite well. Oi wasn't the only part of street culture to attract attentions of the National Front and the British movement in the late 70s and early 80s. Losing out at polling station thanks to the rise of Margaret Thatcher, the National Front had instigated a programme of direct action. It would attempt to kick its way into the headlines at football matches and gigs. Chart bands such as Sham 69, Madness and The Specials had concerts disrupted. 
1978 skinheads caused £7,500 worth of damage at a Sham 69 gig in London. So this was kind of kicking off in other in other ways. It's just unfortunate that the anthem for the National Front is they liked the oi, oi, oi. So they took that song on, um, which the band were obviously mortified about. Did they try... Um, did they try to defend it in any kind of way? Defend the song? I'll come on to what, defend Sorry. the song? Yeah. Well, no, I mean, you know, they continuously said that, it was, you know, they're not right wing, but the association was growing mm-hmm. and um, the violence in their gigs was certainly something that um, was more unique to them, which yeah. was happening at every show because of the football affiliation, which is ridiculous, really, than, than any other gig. But... Um, but it was oi that the far right um, most attracted to this is a song, not least because it attracted football hooligans and the re-emergent skinhead movement. The two groups, the National Front's direct action programme, targeted for recruitment. So because of its connection yeah. to football, uh, I mean, if you listen, read the lyrics, it doesn't talk about football, but it's because the band was so passionate mm-hmm. about football that it kind of led itself down this, this path, which it shouldn't have done, but it did. Um, the Cockney Rejects were not supporters of the far right, National Front or anything like that. They absolutely rejected it. And they said, we played a gig in Camden. We saw these Nazi skinheads beating the shit out of these two punks, um, remembers Turner from the band. They managed to wreck Sham 69's career. Um, but as with our following, you know, they, that's that's what they targeted. Basically, people were staying away from shows because of the trouble. Um, an inflammatory article in the Daily Mail um didn't really help the situation either. So only then did we have people coming down um, thinking it was going to be a right-wing thing. So not only did they have football hooligans, the, because of this kind of um, ill-informed article talking about them being a right-wing band, then drove the National Front people to go to these gigs, unfortunately. So, yeah, so people showed up thinking it was going to be a right-wing thing. When they discovered it wasn't, that's when trouble started. Um, the band was attacked upstairs at a gig at the 100 Club um, by 20 of these thugs, um, and they had a knife pulled on them at Charing Cross Station. You know, it's Jesus. just all this ridiculous stuff. Um, and they said ne- neo-Nazis confronted the Cockney rejects at Barking Station. They basically told them, we're going to come to your gigs and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. So, like, with these these threats. Much worse was to follow, of course, um, in July 1981, um, OI, basically, which is subgenre, I mean, it started to kind of create kind of white supremacy bands as well, um, who, you know, just made the situation worse for those punk bands that had nothing to do with this. And suddenly this genre was becoming a racist, um, fascist <laughs> genre of music anyway. So a gig was um, an OI gig which was featuring um, the band's four skins and the business in Southall, um, which was the scene of a racist murder in 1976 and the race riot that ended in the death of Blair Peach in 1979. Um, Anyway, so they held that there and it erupted into violent chaos. 110 people were hospitalised and the venue, the Hamborough Inn, no, Tavern even, was burned down after a petrol bomb was set off. What the in there. Hell? So, yeah, do you know what I mean? This is all about music and racism, like absolutely terrible. So anyway, so that kind of stopped OI as a genre being anything that could ever be commercial. Mm-hmm. 
Um, the Cockney Rejects found that shops refused to stock their new album, The Power and the Glory, um, because they thought they were a racist band, because they were connected, because someone had like put this badge of a genre and they fell into it, and so that kind of suddenly tarnished them. And what they said was, I sung a song called Oi, 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 and all of a sudden there's a Oi movement, and I didn't really want anything to do with it, says Turner. This awful, awful shit happened in Southall. We were never there, and we got rung, we, we, we got the rug pulled out from under our feet. I went from the TV screen to the Labour Exchange in 18 months. So it just, it completely ruined the band. The band were fighting National Front members on one hand and denying assertions in the press linking them to the National Front on the other because the National Front were at their gigs and they're having all these fights. So the, the connection is still there. The band deny any connections with fascism and racism um, and have been known to, to kind of slag off the British movement, calling them, you know, it's not the British movement, it's the German movement and just... Um, calling them all Nazis and just saying how terrible and disgusting it is. Ultimately, though, it's a fine line between chronicling violence in your songs and helping incite it, is how some people see it. Um, with the violent lyrics and, and things like this, it potentially is going to attract people who think in that way, if that makes sense. But, it, but I still don't think you can blame them for a National Front movement. You can't at all for that no particularly like i think it's almost the scene kind of took off by itself didn't it and it was, yeah, it was well, irrelevant exactly. who sung that song or didn't it was a it was a scene that kind of grew and was overtaken by the national front and i mean the band they were fiercely working class in sort of you know in stance and attitude um they had these sort of political ramblings of sort of the punk first wave and sang about the circumstances that surrounded them and millions of street kids in britain's inner cities police harassment, street battles and football. Ultimately, this also appealed to right-wing groups. Um, the backlash after the entire OIS scene was blamed for the Southall riots was the beginning of the end. They tried to distance themselves from the more unsavoury elements, going for a more sort of hard rock style, but failed to pick up a new audience. Combined with several bad record deals, disillusionment even set in and led to the demise of the original band so that basically this just completely destroyed them um so with the band's first phase being over in the interim they were discovered by a brand new fan base such as us bands like rancid and green day who say the band were totally inspirational to them they cherished um, the cockney rejects and their kind of um terrace punk sing-along anthems um and that kind of inspired a brand new generation of kids to check them out that perhaps didn't really know about the the sort of history and associations with it. But due to overwhelming demand, I say the band has returned to the live circuit in um, 2000 and have since gone from strength to strength and they're playing to hundreds of thousands of people across, across the globe. Hopefully there isn't any uh, Nazis or weird shit going on. Um, anymore. but I mean I suppose I wanted to cover that because I've, I, as I say for a number of reasons like one I didn't know the Cockney rejects were from Canning Town I didn't really know much about them I didn't really know how important the Bridge House was as a venue but then also I really didn't know about this subgenre of punk and the whole the way the National Front 
adopted it and um it just it just seems mental that you had all these absolute assholes showing up at not just Cockney reject gigs but other people's gigs and just kicking off like I don't know you just can't well maybe you can imagine that happening now but um yeah I had no idea no idea that was that was something that that really happened but obviously it did. Thanks for that, because I grew up in that area and I've never even heard of the Bridge House. Never even knew it existed. But yeah, it was a venue that held like over 700 people. Jesus. Or or was it over 500 people? One of the two, but it was quite big. Quite big. Yeah, but just, just the facts that were coming up, like their bass player's uncle was like this gangster affiliated <laughs> with probably one of the most you know outside of the mafia probably one of the most famous gangster stories of its time the cray twins you know it's just like this is mental it's absolutely crazy and then i got sucked into um the newham history club and looking at old <laughs> photos of like you know after the war and it been bombed and what canning town looked like and and all of, yeah, just um, old Rathbone Market and just got got completely sucked in to, to it all. And, we all. and then realised, you know, this is not what I should be doing right now. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'll put, I'll put some, I'll put some notes, obviously, the show notes will have links to all the articles, including um, a link to the Cockney Rejects site, where there's information about them. And then also there's like another sort of Guardian article, and, and a few other bits and pieces about them where I got the information from. Um, for once, I didn't really use Wikipedia because there wasn't really much on there, which I was surprised about. And a little disappointed. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but yeah, just such a crazy story. But, yes, um, that's one thing I've never really... Well, I don't understand racist, like why people are racist anyway, but um, football hooligans... It's a fucking game. There are some boys on a pitch, kicking a ball. You you can care about it, but do you really need to care that much that it's like a turf war? I just think it's so stupid. It's like grow up. Yeah, but I think by the time it gets to that stage, it's not really about just about football, is it? It's about kind of tribalism and belonging and your mates and your tribe. And it's, it's that kind of mentality, isn't it? Find a more peaceful way to have a tribe, man. Like, I just don't understand it. It's just, um, how, I mean, how is it fun going to... You've got to be a, a particularly vicious person to think it's fun to go to a pub and just kick off. Yeah, and please, like, that please is don't just misunderstand crazy. me. I'm not trying to justify this in any I know what you do way. at weekends, Paula. <laughs> what was that, sorry? I know what you do at weekends, Paula. I know you're into football, so... Oi, oi. <laughs> exactly, oi, oi, oi. <laughs> Oh God. Um anyway, so that that was Cockney Rejects Misunderstood and um the Bridge House in Canning Town. So should we I think should we end on some new music yeah, rather let's... than play something and then come back? Because I can't be bothered with that. So I think should we end well, on I something? think this is a cracking one to end on. So should we just do our little bit of housekeeping now? Yes, yes, yes. So we we have bothered to um set up a subscribe form. So if you want to join our mailing list, you can. And that's available everywhere that you will find Bug Eye. So if you want to see us on Twitter, go to Bug Eye Band. And on Instagram and on Facebook, it's Bug Eye Music. But we also have a website, bugeyeband.co.uk, where you can you can check us out there. Um, we're also doing things like creating playlists. We've got a Patreon site. 
which is patreon.com slash bug eye. Is there anything I've missed out, Paula? Yeah, corrections. So if you've spotted something in factually correct, is that right? No, factually. Like like that word. Factually incorrect, I think (laughs) it's meant to be. In this or or any other episode, feel free to drop us an email. Um, We'll always read them out and we'll give you a massive shout out for correcting us because frankly, we probably need it from time to time. The email address for that is rockpop rockpoprambles at gmail.com cool. I wasn't going to give out the band one so yeah just drop, drop us a quick note and if there's anything that you're interested in or any other comments basically to see with the subjects we've covered we'd love to hear them from you I think like anything else you're interested in well I'm, I'm quite interested in mudlarking and cheese plants <laughs> cheese plants <laughs> okay enough of that uh, so this is Nervous Twitch with All Right Lads. They're a Leeds-based band. They've been described as paying homage to the Ramones and their favourite 60s girl groups by the medium of punky pop. This is All Right Lads and I hope you enjoy it.